Hello, and welcome back to the Ethics of Literature. Uh, so, for the last week or so, I've been sitting here reading through the remaining essays in the Romantic Manifesto, and having the usual discourse with the interlocutors hanging around in my head. Um, and I've been wondering if I haven't been too generous on her or to Ayn Rand, to, you know, I'm expecting that quite a few people, or again, the imaginary interlocutors I'm talking to, um, are expecting a little bit more anger, a little bit more frustration, a little bit more conflict with Ayn Rand's ideas. Um, and the good news is that we'll probably get more of that today, because there's a lot of nonsense to parse through, and a lot of sort of translation needs to be done in order to make Ayn Rand's back half of the Romantic Manifesto make very, pretty much any sense. Um, but I doubt if I'm going to actually be as, as nasty or demanding as those interlocutors that I am imagining might expect. Um, the fact of the matter is, I'm actually really sympathetic to Rand's underlying philosophy of art and her attitude towards her own role in the, the literary project. Um, what I do think is that it needs some serious modification in order for it to be robust enough to actually speak to art. Rand leaves a lot of stuff that I think is valuable artistic or artistically meaningful work on the cutting room floor. And what's worse is I think a lot of that could very much fit into her understanding of art if she had a slightly more generous outlook about what that work might actually involve. Um, so rather than sort of taking Ayn Rand to task for being narrow-minded, my goal is to sort of expand Ayn Rand's outlook to include a lot of the things that she otherwise seems to either disregard or neglect or not give enough praise to, um, even when they're in her own sort of philosophical outlook, which, to be honest, is exactly what we've been doing for all of the philosophers we've addressed until this point. You know, most of the time, my last episode on a given thinker tends to be about updating their ideas in order to reflect the contemporary state of art as it is now. Um, and Ayn Rand is no exception. But if anything, I tend to think that Ayn Rand is actually more sort of intelligible from our contemporary perspective than she was even in her own time. I imagine that the problems that she encountered writing in the 1960s would largely have evaporated if she had in fact been treated to the world of art as we have it here in 2023. Um, a lot of the trouble that we run into with Ayn Rand seems to be a product of her own time and place, in much the same way that Sartre was sort of concerned with his own time and place and, and the limitations that were sitting on him. Um, so with that in mind, let's just jump right in and talk about what Ayn Rand means by romanticism here. Because um, in the entire back half of this book, that's the focus. We've spent the first half of the book defining sense of life, talking about how it fits into the, the human psyche, talking about how art affects people, how it educates people, how we you know use art to build our own sense of life, to sort of test our own sense of life. Um, but here in the back half, Ayn Rand changes from a sort of descriptive attitude on art to a prescriptive attitude on art, much like most of the writers that we've also encountered up until this point. Um, so we're not in any really strange territory here, except insofar as Ayn Rand takes a really weird direction to go with her attitude on art. Namely, as the title of the book suggests, and as the title of her first essay in the back half, What is Romanticism, suggests, she associates the 
value of art and the virtues of art with a specific movement, namely Romanticism. And I imagine that at least a lot of the reason why this book gets pretty well, like, totally ignored, even by, you know, people sympathetic to Ayn Rand's philosophy, is because she kind of totally misses the boat on this one. Um, so... Take, for example, her, her definition, her initial definition of Romanticism um, across pages 103 to 106 in this book, because that's, it's fairly sprawling, and it's, it's kind of tough to pin down, but at the same time I want to look at the entire definition as she presents it to us, um, and so we can get a better sense of what exactly she's talking about, what phenomenon she's in fact engaging with here. Um, so as she writes, top page 103, Romanticism is a product of the 19th century, a largely subconscious result of two great influences, Aristotelianism, which liberated man by validating the power of his mind, and Capitalism, which gave man's mind the freedom to translate ideas into, into practice. The second of these influences was itself the result of the first. But while the practical consequences of Aristotelianism were reaching men's daily existence, its theoretical influence was long since gone. Philosophy, since the Renaissance, has been retrogressing overwhelmingly to the mysticism of Plato. Thus, the historically unprecedented events of the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution, the child prodigy speed and the growth of science, the skyrocketing standard of living, the liberated torrent of human energy, were left without intellectual direction or evaluation. The 19th century was guided not by an Aristotelian philosophy, but by an Aristotelian sense of life. And, like a brilliantly violent adolescent who fails to translate his sense of life into conscious terms, it burned itself out, choked by the blind confusions of its own overpowering energy. Whatever their conscious convictions, the artists of that century's great new school, the Romanticists, picked their sense of life out of the cultural atmosphere. It was an atmosphere of men intoxicated by the discovery of freedom, with all the ancient strongholds of tyranny, of church, state, monarchy, feudalism crumbling around them, with unlimited roads opening in all directions and no barriers set to their newly unleashed energy. It was an atmosphere best expressed by that century's naive, exuberant, and tragically blind belief that human progress from here on was to be irresistible and automatic. Already we've run into some pretty serious problems here. Um, first and foremost, like, calling Romanticism the product of an Aristotelian sense of life is kind of mind-boggling to me. Like, I, I, it's tough for me to wrap my brain around this particular paradox, because... At least as I understand it, the Romantics were largely against the same Industrial Revolution that uh, Ayn Rand seems to be championing here. Like, this is a fairly common complaint of the Romantics. This is why Romantic art is usually or defined by images of nature and a celebration of nature, as opposed to the machines and factories and dingy, sooty streets of the major cities that were coming into being at this particular moment in time. Um, likewise, as much as, you know, as much as we seem to be celebrating some Aristotelian sense of life against the, quote, mysticism of Plato, which I'm not touching with a ten-foot pole, um, we should definitely emphasize that the Romantics, as I under understand it, and as most people seem to understand it, see emotion over reason as being the overriding principle underlying their work. The modern era, from and especially the Enlightenment from 1700 to 1800, was all about the cult of reason, absolutely was celebrating rationality first and foremost. The Romantics were reacting against that in large part. They were celebrating heroes and characters who were deeply passionate and deeply emotionally invested in their surroundings, and even celebrating their accomplishments. 
um, like as emotional beings, even when that emotionality interfered with their rational existence. Rather than celebrating the Stoics of the 18th century, the likes of the Philosophes, or perhaps even um, the likes of Kant, um, here we are instead celebrating people who are moved by great passion, great vigor of soul to accomplish great deeds. Something in the in the like guise of a Napoleonic figure, someone who seems to be mad, but instead is changing the face of the world as we know it. Um, and this is, on the one hand, something that Ayn Rand is sympathetic to. Like, the Napoleon image, the idea of one person who can change the world, is something that Ayn Rand obviously cares about a great deal. But seeing that as connected to madness or emotionality is something that Ayn Rand is dead set opposed to. So we have a complicated relationship here. The Romantics are celebrating the triumph of the human spirit in many ways, but what they understand is the core of the human spirit seems to be fairly different from what Ayn Rand has in mind. So she goes on. Aesthetically, the Romanticists were the great rebels and innovators of the 19th century, but in their conscious convictions, they were for the most part anti-Aristotelian and leaning toward a kind of wild, freewheeling mysticism. They did not see their own rebellion in fundamental terms. They were rebelling, in the name of the individual artist's freedom, not against determinism, but much more superficially against the aesthetic establishment of the time, against classicism. Classicism, an example of a much deeper superficiality, was a school that had devised a set of arbitrary, concretely de detailed rules purporting to represent the final and absolute criteria of aesthetic value. In literature, these rules consisted of specific edicts, loosely derived from the Greek and French tragedies, which prescribed every formal aspect of a play, such as the unity of time, place, and action, down to the number of acts and the number of verses permitted to a character in every act. Some of that stuff was based on Aristotle's aesthetics and can serve as an example of what happens when concrete bound mentalities, seeking to bypass the responsibility of thought, attempt to transform abstract principles into concrete prescriptions, and replace creation with imitation. For an example of classicism that survived well into the 20th century, I refer you to the architectural dogmas represented by Howard Rourke's antagonist in The Fountainhead. Even though the classicists had no answer to why their rules were to be accepted as valid, except the usual appeal to tradition, to scholarship, and the prestige of antiquity, this school was regarded as the representative of reason. So we have another potential conflict here, we have another potential confusion here. Yes, Romanticism was very much a reaction against the movement that, at the time, was called Neoclassicism. The same art movement, the same sort of psychological and philosophical movement that gave us the white pillars and neo-Renaissance architecture of, say, the American Capitol building, um, or the same sort of lionization of, how do I put this, classical values, classical standards. Um, throughout the Renaissance and the modern era, we were increasingly sort of imposing Aristotle and Plato and the great classical writers as being the, you know, great wisdom of the time, gradually changing that up as we encountered more and more, like, homegrown science and the likes of, you know, Descartes or Isaac Newton. Um, but overwhelmingly, seeking morality, seeking truth, seeking our understanding of the world from the great classical writers. Um, hence our neoclassical priorities. Even the government structure of the time, look at the American Constitution, is at least loosely based on Roman and Greek archetypes. So we are celebrating this ancient mode of thinking, calling it rationality, and Rand here calls it out for being itself just dogma, tradition, and not actually anything innovative or new. 
But she's also in the same breath celebrating the, the new freedom that this is granting to people. This freedom that is largely won because of these appeals to classicism. Because now we are celebrating the Roman Republic rather than the monarchies of old. Um, because we are celebrating the Greek notion of democracy and basing our understanding of government on that notion of democracy rather than on the traditions and tyrannies of yesteryear. Um, so once again, yes, we are seeing all the same pieces that she is seeing, but she is organizing them in a radically different way that is kind of confusing because we are not seeing necessarily an explanation of why her historical interpretation pans out the way that it does. For her, classicism is the old guard. It's entrenched. It's dogmatic. It belongs to a long-forgotten past that should have been long-forgotten long ago. But for us we see classicism as being associated with rationality and romanticism being re associated with the emotionality of it. Classicism is what gave us the cities, the industrial revolution, the inexorable myth of progress, where romanticism is at war with that same idea of progress, though Rand associates it with progress itself. It's super messy here. And on some level, I think she knows this. She goes on, Such were the roots of one of the grimmest ironies in cultural history. The early attempts to define the nature of Romanticism declared it to be an aesthetic school based on the primacy of emotions, as against the champions of the primacy of reason, which were the classicists and later the naturalists. In various forms, this definition has persisted to our day. It is an example of the intellectually disastrous consequences of definitions by non-essentials, and an example of the penalty one pays for a non-philosophical approach to cultural phenomenon. One can observe the misapprehended element of truth that gave rise to that early classification. What the Romanticists brought to art was the primacy of values, an element that had been missing in the stale, arid third and fourth hand and rate repetitions of the classicists' formula copying. Values and value judgments are the source of emotions. A great deal of emotional intensity was projected in the work of the Romanticists and in the reactions of their audiences, as well as a great deal of color, imagination, originality, excitement, and all the other consequences of a value-oriented view of life. This emotional element was the most easily perceivable characteristic of the new movement, and it was taken as its defining characteristic without deeper inquiry. Such issues as the fact that the primacy of values in human life is not an irreducible primacy that rests on man's faculty of volition, and therefore that the Romanticists, philosophically, were the champions of volition, which is the root of values, and not of emotions, which are merely the consequences, were issues to be defined by philosophers, who defaulted in regard to aesthetics as they did in regard to every other crucial aspect of the 19th century. The still deeper issue, the fact that the faculty of reason is the faculty of volition, was not known at the time, and the various theories of free will were, for the most part, of an anti-rational character, thus reinforcing the association of volition with mysticism. So let's focus on the central tenet here, the central defining characteristic of Romanticism as Rand identifies it. She specifically tells us that the reason why Romanticism is Romanticism, the thing that defines it, was the primacy of values, an element that had been missing in the stale, arid, third and fourth hand repetitions of the classicists' formula copying. So we are talking about people who are driven by values here. And on this one, I'm totally in agreement with Rand. I absolutely see the point of what she's saying here. 
While most 18th century art, most 18th century novels, most 18th century views of the universe kind of tend to take this deterministic attitude towards human beings, they are the product of their nature, they are to be sort of corralled and governed, um, they must be sort of brought into line with rationality as, you know, rationality conquering the emotions, conquering the, the you know, personal preferences, again, in the same vein as the Stoics. Here, Rand is positing, now the Romantics are value-driven. We have heroes, we have characters who are possessed of some idea and who are driven by that idea. And you can see this in the deliberate emotionality of Werther and the sufferings of young Werther. You can see this in the characters she's about to bring up in Victor Hugo novels. You can see this in Dostoevsky's characters who are often based on romantic ideals or the past romantic uh, archetypes. This absolutely lines up with what we're dealing with. The trouble is, values, broadly spoken, really can't be boiled down to either rationality or emotionality. People who believe strongly about things is kind of something that can be rooted in either. Werther isn't rational, but is strongly motivated by his irrationality, whereas someone like Dostoevsky's Stavrogin is motivated by rationality to the point of irrationality. Um, we see a lot of sort of play between the rational and irrational characteristics of characters throughout the Romantic era, and that, I think, is where things get super complicated. Values as being the core idea, yes, I agree that is the central tenet of Romanticism. I think Rand is definitely onto something here. But I don't think that values and acting according to values, broadly speaking, are either in a purely rational or purely, you know, irrational, purely deterministic or purely free will motivated kind of perspective. The Romantics recognized that there was conflict there. There was a tension between the uh, the sort of rational behavior of people usually represented by the moderns and the emotional behavior of people now represented by this new strain of heroes. In both cases, though, what they are stressing is the primacy of the individual. That, I think, is the key here. Where so many movements beforehand sort of subjugated the individual to the collective, where we have all of these people sort of arguing about, you know, yes, the people should rule the nation, and therefore we need to, like, overcome human nature, overcome personal desire, overcome personal selfishness in order to build a successful society following the likes of Hobbes, following the likes of Locke. Now we are looking at a world where the personal convictions of a person are going to change the world, should change the world, and are the only guide to changing the world. Instead of the pure rationality of the founding fathers of the Constitution insisting that, you know, they could not let a tyrant take over the world, now we have Napoleon changing the world from the outside and everybody's cool with it and maybe these passionate individuals should actually be held up as examples for everybody. Which is a gross, you know, mischaracterization of a lot of what's going on here, but nonetheless, that's kind of what the Romantics are at the end of the day, arguing against what we saw before. And I'm sure that this appeals to Rand. Like, Rand is all about the 
radical triumph of the individual, the, you know, guiding motivation of rationality, overriding all of one's other needs, you know, the supposed rules about aesthetics or virtue or ethics get in the way of these people and they just walk right over them. Like, this is absolutely her attitude. It makes sense that this kind of romanticism would indeed appeal to her. But romanticism, again, champions the irrational along with the rational. Yes, Victor Hugo may have been championing the, the rational hero, but we also have Goethe championing the irrational hero, and both of them are a part of the Romantic movement. Both of them are crucial to a proper understanding of the Romantic movement. So as she goes on, the Romanticists saw their cause primarily as a battle for their right to individuality, and, unable to grasp the deepest metaphysical justification of their cause, unable to identify their values in terms of reason, they fought for individuality in terms of feelings, surrendering the banner of reason to their enemies. There were other, lesser consequences of this fundamental error, all of them symptoms of the intellectual confusion of the age. Groping blindly for a metaphysically oriented, grand-scale, exalted way of life, the Romanticists, predominantly, were enemies of capitalism, which they regarded as a prosaic, materialistic, petty bourgeois system, never realizing that it was the only system that could make freedom, individuality, and the pursuit of values possible in practice. Some of them chose to be advocates of socialism. Some turned for inspiration to the Middle Ages and became shameless glamorizers of that nightmare era. Some ended up where most champions of the non-rational end up, in religion. All of it served to accelerate Romanticism's growing break with reality. When, in the latter half of the 19th century, naturalism rose to prominence, and, assuming the mantle of reason and reality, proclaimed the artist's duty to portray things as they are, Romanticism did not have much of an opposition to offer. It must be noted that philosophers contributed to the confusion surrounding the term Romanticism. They attached the name Romantic to certain philosophers, such as Schelling and Schopenhauer, who were avowed mystics, advocating the supremacy of emotions, instincts, or will over reason. This movement in philosophy had no significant relation to Romanticism and aesthetics, and the two movements must not be confused. The common nomenclature, however, is significant in one respect. It indicates the depth of the confusion on the subject of volition. The Romantic philosophers' theories were a viciously malevolent, existence-hating attempt to uphold volition in the name of whim-worship, while the aesthetic Romanticists were groping blindly to uphold volition in the name of man's life and values here on Earth. In terms of essentials, the brilliant sunlight of Victor Hugo's universe is the diametrical opposite of the venomous muck of Schopenhauer's. It was only philosophical package dealing that could throw them in the same category. But the issue demonstrates the profound importance of the subject of volition, and the grotesque distortions it assumes when men are unable to grasp its nature. This issue may also serve as an illustration of the importance of establishing that volition is a function of man's rational faculty. This is where I think the key problem between my view of Romanticism and what I assume is also the dominant view of Romanticism, how that kind of comes into conflict with the view of Romanticism espoused by Rand here. What we are seeing is a difference in understanding between what is the soul, what is the truth of Romanticism. For Rand, Schopenhauer and his attitudes towards Romanticism are a perversion of Romanticism. The German attitude towards Romanticism, which is the product of the likes of Goethe, is wrong. It is not what Romanticism is all about, and should be excluded from the understanding of Romanticism because it is in fact a completely different and totally opposed movement to the likes of something like Victor Hugo. But, I kind of tend to think that the opposite is more true. 
don't get me wrong, I love Victor Hugo in theory. Unfortunately, this is one of those where I have to admit that, like, I'm just totally outclassed and I really don't know Victor Hugo that well. Um, I know him by theory. I know the plots of all of his novels. I've obviously, you know, encountered both The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Miserables and contemporary adaptation. Um... I know what the difference is between the version that Hugo wrote and the version that we see today tend to involve. But at the same time, I tend to think that what Rand considers the most important artist of the Romantic period, namely Victor Hugo, is truly romantic, but truly romantic for different reasons, incidental reasons, to what Rand seems to think is crucial to Romanticism. Where Rand sees Romanticism as being an outpouring of Victor Hugo-esque desire for volition, strength of character, and people who are motivated by rationality alone, I tend to think that what brings Victor Hugo into the Romantic movement isn't his interest in the volition of his characters, and has much more to do with the social circumstances that they find themselves in. Victor Hugo's condemnation of the Industrial Revolution's detritus, the lot of the poor in France, makes him much more an ally of the rest of the Romantics than his interest in volition and these strong, powerful characters. That, I think, is the fundamental confusion here. And you can see it across almost all of these essays. Rand frequently champions Victor Hugo, uh, confesses in one of her later articles that, you know, reading Victor Hugo while she was a young child in Soviet Russia was like getting a breath, breath of fresh air, being able to see light for the first time. Like, he was a transformative experience, and it makes sense that she would gravitate towards him, see him as the sort of central principle underlying Romanticism in a way that I just don't. For me, Romanticism is defined by Goethe, and that's how I tend to teach to my students. And it is entirely possible that I, too, am biased here. That I, too, am looking at it from the perspective that I have associated with it, which is itself, you know, erroneous and indicative of only one corner of this grand movement. But I also am looking at a whole bunch of other facets of Romanticism that Rand pretty deliberately excludes. I teach Goethe so I can teach Schopenhauer, so I can teach Turner, so I can teach, you know, Hawthorne and Hugo and possibly Dickens and beyond. As Rand kind of reveals in a little while, you know, when she in fact talks about the romantics that she considers sort of char or characteristic of the movement, um, on page 107, she says, The implicit standards of romanticism are so demanding that in spite of the abundance of romantic writers at the time of its dominance, the school has produced very few pure, consistent romanticists of the top rank. Among novelists, the greatest are Victor Hugo and Dostoevsky, and as single novels, whose authors were not always consistent in the rest of their works, I would name Henrik Seinkowitz's Quo Vadis and Nathaniel Hawthorne's The, Great the Scarlet Letter. Among playwrights, the greatest are Friedrich Schiller and Edmund Rostand. This is already super confusing to me. Schiller, I'll grant. Rostand, I'll grant. Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, I'll grant, though that's American romanticism and very much a different animal in a lot of ways. But classing Dostoevsky as the other great romantic novelist? No, I, I, I just can't. Dostoevsky is writing too late in the movement to properly be considered romantic. He is definitely fusing romantic and realistic ideals in order to come up with something new, which many many uh, contemporary scholars tend to call modernism. Like, he is sort of 
earlier modernism, the earliest stages of modernism, calling him a romantic is ridiculously reductive. Um, and I think to some degree Rand probably knows that. Remember, we've gotten a characteristic or characterization of Dostoevsky from her before, namely that, you know, he is the author who shows her a chamber of horrors, but he is a powerful guide. Like, clearly he is interested in realistic problems, even as he is writing with a sort of romantic approach. Um, thus sort of moving him off the the sort of romantic center and moving him towards the periphery if we can consider him a romantic at all. So it's way more complicated than that in short. And while I do identify many of her sort of favorite writers here as being dyed-in-the-wool romantics, I have a lot of questions about quite a few of the others. I think that she's not looking at romanticism as romanticism. I think she's looking at a kind of different movement altogether within Romanticism that she is confused for the movement of Romanticism at large. If we understand Romanticism in the traditional sense as incorporating the likes of Goethe and Hugo, as incorporating the likes of Gogol and the Brothers Grimm, as well as, you know, your Rostands and your Nathaniel Hawthorns, we probably are going to get a very different picture, a very different set of priorities. Yes, Hugo stands out among them as have some, having something else, something that defines his work, characterizes it, and that very much especially appeals to Rand herself. But that characteristic is not what's crucial to Romanticism, even if it was Romanticism that allowed that characteristic to come about, and that we see repeated in the likes of Dostoevsky and elsewhere. So what I want to do is I want to sort of separate Rand's view of Romanticism from the rest of the Romantics as we tend to understand them. I want to see Turner as being Romanticism proper, but I want to see Hugo, at least as Rand understands it, as being a proponent of, let's call it, heroic Romanticism. And yes, there are many heroic Romantic writers. Perhaps the Scarlet Letter should be included among this list. It certainly features these characters driven by their various values, coming into conflict with each other, challenging one another. Um, that rationality, as Rand describes it, is very much on display here. But that is not to say that, say, Washington Irving is not also doing Romanticism, or that Goethe is also not doing Romanticism, or that Zola is also not doing Romanticism. All of these folks we will call romantics, but the special elect few that Rand particularly likes are heroic romantics. They are not just interested in the social circumstances that have brought about romanticism. They are not engaged with, necessarily, the focus on the natural world as the alternative to the Industrial Revolution. Instead, these are people who are very much moved by the heroic individuality of some strong characters over others. They champion those individuals, and like Rand, they ultimately think they are responsible for doing, you know, the great deeds of this world against all of the people who are trying to bring them down. This is not necessarily essentially romantic, but it is something that is deeply connected to romanticism and that we should identify as its own sort of separate phenomenon within the greater phenomenon. In the same way that we might talk about like genres of music and how within the greater confines of rock music there is metal, and within the great con greater confines of metal we have like, I don't know, pop metal or, you know, British metal or whatever. Clearly there are other things going on here with other sort of priorities. We should be able to separate them at first blush. And what I want to emphasize here is that on, the, on its face, 
all of that discussion that I just read, all of that characterization of romanticism that Rand is emphasizing, does read like nonsense if you are coming from, you know, outside of her outlook, outside of her particular school of thought. But again, I want to be sympathetic to her. As much as, yes, I totally disagree with her characterization of what is, quote, essential about romanticism, I do want to get at the phenomenon that is seriously moving her. Because as much as Ayn Rand is wrong about romanticism, and I'm not, you know, terribly shy about saying that, I do think she's being moved by something serious and profound, and that it does really inform the rest of her philosophy on what art is and what art should be. So if we do her the justice, the give her the benefit of the doubt, she is likely to reveal something to us that probably we wouldn't have seen otherwise. So, given this understanding of a kind of heroic romanticism, Rand goes on to sort of pitch, pit it against its enemies, and especially what she calls naturalism. Now, naturalism is another one of these super-loaded terms for a movement that I really do not want to, like, end up having to pick apart. For me, naturalism has always meant a sort of focus on the world as being completely without supernatural elements, i.e. it is a world where human instinct is king, where determinism is the order of the day. And Rand seems to largely agree with this. Although I would hesitate to call any specific group of writers or artists naturalists specifically, because if there was a movement here, it wasn't identified as such. Usually when you talk about art movements in the 19th century, you talk about romanticism and then you talk about realism. But as Rand confesses that she is a romantic realist, which just, you know, like at that point, like all of the scholars are just clutching their heads in agony... We are, I think it's wise to sort of classify the, the heroic romanticists of Rand's liking versus the naturalists that she identifies here. The trouble is, since there is no naturalist movement, as far as I understand it, we are dealing with something especially amorphous here. If Rand's romanticists, her heroic romantics, as we've chosen to call them, are defined by their emphasis on values, their you know seizing of their own free will and volition, if they are moved by rationality primarily, or at the very least by strong inclinations to emotion, the naturalists are, at the end of the day, focused instead on representing life, quote, as it really is i.e. with all of the mess, with all of the indecision, with all of the characters who are sort of just wandering about aimlessly until things happen to them that spur them to movement. And this could describe a lot of 19th century writers. It would probably not be a stretch to call Jane Austen a naturalist in this sense. It would definitely not be a stretch to call the likes of someone like uh, Ernest Hemingway or William Faulkner in the 20th century a naturalist. And I imagine that Rand would be pretty quick to point that out. For her, based on what she's going to say later on in her, in her other essays, she very much stresses that naturalism is the order of the day. It is what she is fighting against. It is the dominant art movement of her time. It is why she is so much lambasted by her fellow artists and scholars of the day. She is a romantic transported out of time in a world that is deliberately hostile to romanticism because it has been overtaken by this naturalistic view. And this, I think, again, is a little reductive, but I do see the point. 
And I also have similar problems with naturalism, especially in this deterministic variety. If we are to understand naturalism as meaning humans are, dri are driven by instinct, that they do not have some sort of higher rationality, that their rationality is, as Schopenhauer or Freud would argue, just a manifestation of you know, their deeper desires, their sexual desires, their you know, desire to survive, then yeah, I am grumpy with this movement as well. I think that it is shallow, I think that it is reductive, I think that it very much undersells what human beings are capable of, and I do think that it contributes to an overwhel per overwhelming perspective where people are very willing to just not cover their own, you know, actions, not take responsibility or accountability for what they've done, and instead see themselves as being the product of impulses that they cannot control. That I find very upsetting, and just as Rand does. But at the same time, like, as much as Rand spends a lot of time talking about naturalism, I'm not terribly interested in doing that here. Um, part of that is because as much as I'm going to get grumpy at naturalistic writers like Milan Kundera or Raymond Carver, I don't feel terribly great just dumping on them, especially when I don't know enough about their work to be able to, you know, speak on their behalf and, and talk about the redeeming qualities or talk about how I might have them confused. Most of those writers, because I don't like them, I've only read them once, if at all. Um, and I don't feel any terrible inclination to go back and try reading them again. Um, as much as there are a ton of artists out there, and as much as many of them are very celebrated by other artists, I don't tend to think that their value is going to persist for very long, for the same reasons we talked about a couple weeks ago, when I emphasize that many writers today have left these kind of writers in the dust. You know, as much as we might very well say, like, the realists of the 19th century were an important art movement, you would be pretty hard-pressed to find writers working today who are, like, die-hard Trollope fans or, you know, absolutely 100% ride-or-die for someone like George Sand. Um, they're just not there so much. Like, yeah, you want to talk about Jane Austen? Sure, but Jane Austen is kind of playing with a values-driven system that is a little bit opposed to naturalism proper. Um, likewise, as much as I may have lumped Hemingway and Faulkner into the category of realism, because I imagine that Rand would do the same, they really aren't naturalists in that sense. Both of them have a very high view of values, but we'll be talking about that in its own time. What I want to stress here is that we have a kind of false dichotomy between the romantics on the one hand and the naturalists on the other. Further confused by the fact that Rand isn't being terribly clear about what she means by either. Yes, she is pretty clear about the underlying motives of both and seeing the opposition between those two motives, but she's not going to drop a lot of names of various naturalist writers for the same reason that I'm not going to talk extensively about Milan Kundra, presumably because they upset her and she's not going out of her way to read them. She doesn't feel obliged to study them. Um, you can only really talk intelligently about something that you are sympathetic to, because otherwise you'll find the thing so repugnant that you're not going to be able to get through it. And I tend to think we are both in that category there. Um, so instead I want to focus on the sort of satellite movements that Rand confronts here in, you know, her What is Romanticism essay and elsewhere. Um, specifically I want to talk about her take on popular fiction. Because this is where I find her work to be so fascinating. 
Like, if she is way off base about romanticism, and I am fully willing to admit that she's way off base about romanticism, I am very interested in how her particular understanding of what art is and what art should do applies to the other contemporary movements going on in her own day, the world as she sees it. And if, in fact, the sort of underlying principle of romanticism, this heroic romanticism she is talking about, is what she's actually championing, sort of separate from the romantic movement generally understood, then I am very curious to see where that is sort of reflected and where she sees that in the contemporary art world at the time. The bad news is there's not actually a whole lot of it, as she puts it. These are bastardized versions of Romanticism, not some sort of higher realization of what Romanticism has to offer. So, take what she writes in, on page 110 about popular fiction. In the field of popular literature, Romanticism's virtues and potential flaws may be seen in a simplified, more obvious form. Popular literature is fiction that does not deal with abstract problems. It takes moral principles as the given, accepting certain generalized common-sense ideas and values as its base. Common-sense values and conventional values are not the same thing. The first can be justified rationally, the second cannot. Even though the second may include some of the first, they are justified, not on the ground of reason, but on the ground of social conformity. Popular fiction does not raise or answer abstract questions. It assumes that man knows what he needs to know in order to live, and it proceeds to show his adventures and live it which is one of the reasons for its popularity among all types of readers, including the problem-laden intellectuals. The distinctive characteristic of popular fiction is the absence of an explicitly ideational element, or the intent to convey intellectual information or misinformation. Detective, adventure, science fiction novels, and westerns belong, for the most part, to the category of popular fiction. The best writers of this group, of this category, come close to the Scott Dumas group, two writers that she identified as being like secondary romantics um, earlier on in her essay. Their emphasis is on action, but their heroes and villains are abstract projections, and a loosely generalized view of moral values of a struggle between good and evil motivates the action. As contemporary examples of the best in this class, Mickey Spillane, Ian Fleming, and Donald Hamilton. Now, fortunately for us, at least one of those popular writers has not just gone on to continue to be popular, but is in fact kind of a huge deal even today. Um, specifically, Ian Fleming and his creation James Bond is kind of still vibrant in the popular consciousness today, much as Spillane and Hamilton really aren't. Um, so, fortunately, she elaborates on this in her bootleg romanticism essay. Um, on page 136, she writes, If you think that the producers of mass media entertainment are motivated primarily by commercial greed, check your premises and observe that the producers of the James Bond movie seem to be intent on undercutting their own success. Contrary to somebody's strenuously spread assertions, there was nothing tongue-in-cheek about the first of these movies, Dr. No. It was a brilliant example of romantic screen art, in production, direction, writing, photography, and, most particularly, in the performance of Sean Connery. His first introduction on the screen was a gem of dramatic technique, elegance, wit, and understatement. When, in response to a question about his name, we saw his first close-up and he answered quietly, Bond, James Bond, the audience on the night I saw it burst into applause. There wasn't much applause on the night when I saw his second movie, From Russia With Love. Here, Bond was introduced pecking with schoolboy kisses at the face of a vapid-looking girl in a bathing suit. The story was muddled and at times unintelligible. The skillfully constructed dramatic suspense of Fleming's climax was replaced by conventional stuff such as old-fashioned chases involving nothing but crude physical danger. 
I shall still go to see the third movie, Goldfinger, but with heavy misgivings. The misgivings are based on an article by Richard Maibaum, who adapted all three novels to the screen in an article from the New York Times, December 13th, 1964. Which, I imagine that Rand absolutely hated Goldfinger. Like, I love Goldfinger because it is silly and ridiculous and utterly just, like, nonsensical. Um, it was probably the best of that particular director's run before he got, like, super-duper racist and something like Live and Let Die. But nonetheless... What I want to emphasize here is that Rand sees Dr. No, the earliest incarnation of James Bond and the James Bond of Ian Fleming, as being a type of a romantic hero. She recognizes his understatement, his convictions, his sense of action without any question or, or debate to be itself indicative of that romantic mindset in a lot of ways. Something that is then satirized, turned into tongue-in-cheek, which is what she's criticizing throughout her essay in Bootleg Romanticism, and from Russia with Love, and almost certainly in Goldfinger as well. So that's largely what she associates contemporary romanticism with. She sees it as being sort of continued to be embodied in contemporary popular culture. But importantly, as she says, the difference between popular art and true art, great art, is that it is not interested in debating these issues of morality, these issues of values, these issues of ethics in some sense, but instead assumes them, whether conventional or otherwise. We grant that James Bond is good because he is serving his country. He will not actually face any serious challenges to those convictions. Instead, we will just see him overcome obstacles, overcome dangers, fight with people who represent ide different ideologies, and never actually feel tempted or challenged to take up a different mantle. That's how Rand understands popular art. And I find this to be really interesting. Like, I have, again, as we know, resisted the sort of distinction between what is popular or conventional or commercial art versus what is actually great art. Like, I have basically lumped the whole thing into cat the category of art and, you know, be done with it, with the exception of literature, which we've had a discussion about. So... I am largely not interested in, you know, trying to draw the distinctions between what does and what does not constitute capital A art in some sense, but I am interested that Rand actually does give us a pretty concrete definition here, namely, here is the art that, in fact, examines values, questions them, challenges them, dramatizes these conflicts between values, versus here is art that just presents people who believe in values and doesn't bother to question them or challenge them whatsoever. That's a pretty concrete distinction, and a pretty good one, I tend to think, if we were in fact going to follow that line of reasoning. The trouble is, as commercial art, as popular art becomes more sophisticated, it is kind of harder to separate the two, I tend to think. And they are, at least today, largely collapsed into one another, and the distinctions are much more nuanced than just, you know, this one does or this one does not deal with conflicting values. But more about that as we go on. We should also note that the other sort of major popular, like, artistic thing that Rand identifies as being part of this sort of romantic, heroic complex is Buck Rogers, as she talks about in Art and Moral Treason on page 149. Um, here, in this essay, which I actually found really fascinating, 
Rand is examining the sort of development of children and how her how their adults, their parents or their teachers, sort of discourage them from the romantic outlook from a very young age, thus confusing their ideas and confusing their morality because we as human beings, according to Rand, are devoted, deliberately trying to build a moral framework, a system of values that will guide us through the future. And that this kind of art is supposed to do some of the work there. So she says on page 149, thus the adults whose foremost moral obligation toward a child at this stage of his development is to help him understand that what he loves is an abstraction, to help him break through into the conceptual realm, accomplish the exact opposite. They stunt his conceptual capacity, they cripple his normative abstractions, they stifle his moral ambition, that is, his desire for virtue, that is, his self-esteem. They arrest his value development on a primitively literal, concrete-bound level. They convince him that to be like Buck Rogers means to wear a space helmet and blast armies of Martians with a disintegrator gun, and that he'd better give up such notions if he ever expects to make a respectable living. And they finish him off with such gems of argumentation as Buck Rogers, ha-ha, never gets any colds in the head. Do you know any real people who never get them? Why, you had one last week, so don't you go on imagining that you're better than the rest of us. Their motive is obvious. If they actually regarded romanticism as an impractical fantasy, they would feel nothing but a friendly or indifferent amusement, not the passionate resentment and uncontrollable rage which they do feel and exhibit. Now, right here at the outset, we should note that Buck Rogers is held up as this sort of archetypal example of what a hero should be, in much the same way as James Bond was held up a little while ago. Both are popular characters, both coming from these quasi-romantic sources, both identified by Rand as being not great art, i.e. art sort of interested in discussing the conflict of values, but instead championing values and championing people who do in fact practice those values, which is one step away from the heroic romanticism that Rand considers the greatest achievement in artistic accomplishment today. We should also notice, though, that this argument we've heard before, namely C.S. Lewis, in his experiment on criticism, has also sort of toyed with the idea of, you know, the moral instruction that these children receive from the likes of, say, Buck Rogers or fantasy or science fiction or whatever. It is something that Tolkien held very close to his heart. It's something that C.S. Lewis very much identifies with. And it's kind of weird to think that now we have some really super strange bedfellows in Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and their understanding of the romantic world, the world brought about through the medieval world, which Rand herself thinks is terrible, and now Rand and her championing of the romantics, which now we're in a just really complicated intellectual space that I am really going to be hard-pressed to sort of get ourselves out of. So we're going to hold off on that for now. I do want to come back to it, and we definitely will come back to it, but I want to sort of note that as far as Rand is concerned, the bringing up of children using art is deeply bound up with this, you know, heroic romanticism. These characters who are presented to us as these moral exemplars, be they James Bond or Buck Rogers or whoever. And this same movement, this same perspective on the relationship between children and art is shared by Lewis and Tolkien, it is shared by Plato, it is shared by many other writers that Rand probably didn't get along with for one reason or another. But the other thing that I definitely want to stress here is if we look at James Bond and Buck Rogers as being the sort of 
archetypes of Randesque heroes, it doesn't take us very long to get to the next logical sort of generation of these heroes. Buck Rogers was one of the main inspirations for the likes of Star Wars, and it, you can draw a pretty straight line between Buck Rogers and Luke Skywalker and the people and children who love Star Wars today. If anything, I think Rand and her attitude on what, you know, contemporary fiction, you know, should be kind of won at the end of the day. And that's something that I want to sort of, like, note, that as much as we kind of, as a culture, have rejected Rand's outlook for one reason or another because of the reasons that we talked about last time, her outlook on art, I think, was really accurate if we understand it in terms of not, you know, romantic movement versus nat or realistic movement or, you know, what is and is not romanticism, but instead think of it in terms of what is art's function, what is it supposed to do for us, and which, of, which works of art accomplish this where other works do not. If she's holding up James Bond and Buck Rogers in the 1960s as being moral exemplars and standards for what art should look like in the future, and then, lo and behold, they are, to this day, standards of what art should look like in the present, I think she's onto something here, in a way that a lot of writers simply weren't. You know, as much as Sartre does land on a couple of writers that we still consider really important today, a lot of the most important writers that he singled out in the 1940s have been lost to us. They are not considered nearly as important as Sartre thought they would turn out to be. But Rand, Rand's sense of what is and is not valuable somehow manages to be pretty accurate, despite the fact that we all think Rand is a moron. Even if we see her, you know, specific perspective on what art movements mean as erroneous, and probably we should, we shouldn't rule out the possibility that what she thinks is valuable about art may actually be what we as a culture also think is valuable about art. So when we come to, you know, what is this thing that she is talking about? What is the heroic romanticism? What is actually her art? She's pretty clear-cut about this. Not only do we have all of the stuff that we talked about last time with the sense of life, the way that it communicates ideas and values to our cognition, the way that you know art is the mechanism by which we communicate our sense of life to one another, even if we see this in terms of child-rearing and education like Rand talks about here, which is, we should note, fairly unprecedented in Rand's work, like one of the main criticisms that people tend to bring up a, a, against her in The Fountainhead and, and Atlas Shrugged is that she doesn't talk about children or dependence at all. Now, finally, she's talking about children. She's talking about the, their moral development, how to teach them. And it suddenly seems to make sense with a lot of what we think about how we're supposed to teach children today using art. So all of this is presenting a surprisingly cogent worldview for somebody with a surprisingly incoherent view of art. But all of this kind of comes together into her essay, The Goal of My Writing, which is her being as honest as we possibly can about what her art is for, and you can't really gainsay her on this one just because this is what she believes, this is what she considers that her priorities. Who is to say otherwise? And I think really the first paragraph says it all here. The motive and purpose of my writing is the projection of an ideal man. The portrayal of a moral ideal as my ultimate literary goal, as an end in itself, to which any didactic, intellectual, or philosophical values contained in a novel are only the means. And she will go on at length, just 
defending this perspective and describing this perspective. She emphasizes that she is not doing it for the sake of the people who are reading her work in true Randian fashion. She is doing it for her own sake so she can see this and anyone who benefits is just a happy accident of the whole thing, but is also, you know, because of her objectivist philosophy, really, like, that's the morality underlying what she's doing. That's all fine. But what I want to emphasize here is what we sort of touched on last time and what is suddenly brought into much greater focus, namely that Rand sees her works of art as fantasy, as bringing forth the ideal of both society and human beings as we understand them. And this, I think, is what makes this so interesting as far as trying to parse and understand Rand's whole artistic perspective and how it fits with our own and how it fits with her contemporaries. Because on the one hand, there is a lot about Rand we don't like. We don't like how much she champions capitalism. We don't like how much she lionizes the, you know, industrialists of the day who all went on to become, you know, monopolies and, and like, great troublemakers in, you know, our, the grand social history. But at the same time, I think Rand elevating the industrialist to heroic proportions is a fairly natural move here, a unique one but nonetheless a fairly logical one. In the same way that Tolkien raises up the knights of old to heroic proportions, or the way that C.S. Lewis sort of, you know, adopts and transforms children into heroes in the, the various Narnia books, so Rand sees an ideal world built on the principles of capitalism. One where the great heroes are, in fact, the industrialists. And we can, in fact, be inspired by this particular move and this particular reinterpretation. It is, to some degree, offensive to us because, in truth, most capitalists are not nearly so... I don't even know. Like, saying selfless is, is definitely the wrong move here. Self-interested, value-oriented, the way that Rand talks about it here. Most of them are out for profit and profit alone. And you'll note, like, in passing, some of these articles, Rand emphasizes that those who are out for just gain, those who are out for money and not just the intrinsic reward of doing the thing that they love, are themselves perverts and, you know, destructive and ultimately causing more harm than good. Something that we, I tend to think, would agree with. In the sense that Rand's heroes are supposedly motivated by selfishness, I think we should actually identify that as a different characteristic altogether. The values that they are chasing are themselves a sort of integrity, not selfishness. They are seeking to become the best version of whatever task it is that they have taken upon themselves to accomplish. And that has very little to do with, quote, selfishness as we typically understand it. It is, in an Aristotelian sense, selfish, in the same way that, you know, pursuing virtue is selfish because it makes you the best version of yourself in Aristotle's philosophy, but that is not what we conventionally mean by selfishness, and once again, we're in territory where Rand's use of words is at odds with how we usually use them ourselves. So, there's a lot to unpack here, for sure. But what I want to, what I want to sort of identify and capitalize on here, what I want to sort of stress about Rand's philosophy and its insight, is that at the end of the day, she is championing a very familiar view of what art is supposed to do and how art is supposed to work, how it is supposed to raise up these heroes, whether they are romantic heroes like Valjean, um, or alternatively, you know, capitalist heroes like Howard Rourke. We end up looking at something that we've seen a lot in the history of art, and definitely not just in Romanticism. 
like, we are kind of talking about the hero's narrative, right? Like, that's really what's going on under the surface. What we are dealing with in Rand's romantic heroism or her heroic romanticism is on par with, say, what Plato identified Homer to be doing in the Iliad and the Odyssey. I mean, this is exactly the conversation that I have at the beginning of my mythology class. And, you know, I'm not going to repeat myself here because... Again, like, you can definitely go back and listen to those lectures on, you know, Lewis and Tolkien and, and Plato to sort of get what my thoughts are there. Um, but that's really what we're talking about. What Rand holds up as being the defining characteristic, the greatest accomplishments of, of the past, she focuses on romanticism and Victor Hugo especially to do that, but we can find this in the Iliad and the Odyssey, we can find this in, you know, the Aeneid, we can find this in various great works of literature throughout history, and if anything it just makes it all the more boggling that, you know, Rand condemns the medieval period because how could the, you know, exploits of King Arthur and his knights not fall into this category? Like, maybe I'm being too broad with Rand's understanding of heroism here, but I honestly think that all of these characters, all of these heroes motivated by rational values, heroes motivated by values that are close to them, this, at the end of the day, is what Rand is championing. Now, her understanding of what is rationality is very much at odds with Homer, or Chrétien de Troyes, or Mallory, or Tolkien, or Lewis, or any of the other people that we've sort of brought up. But I, this is where I want to sort of expand and extend Rand's reach. If we understand her mode of understanding art as being educational, the way that like we orient our own morality according to the art that we consume as children, or the way that we are brought up to identify certain characters as being heroic and therefore are sort of inspired to emulate them, we get a much broader view of how this art works and if we understand values or self or the the sort of rational values that rand kind of hand waves here and yet seems surprisingly protective about to the likes of you know tolkien's christianity or um the sort of like utilitarian altruism of someone like the, the various social writers of the 19th century, we get a much more cogent view of art that prescribes heroic virtue and presents role models of the same, as opposed to the very limited view where, you know, the only characters who constitute true romantic heroes are those of Hugo, Dostoevsky, and apparently James Bond and Buck Rogers. This, I think, does a lot more to explain the way that art works than even Rand is kind of interested in doing. Now, there are questions to be had here about, you know, whether these same heroes are pandering or whether, you know, we, we are ultimately, like, doing people a disservice by scraping off all of the flaws of these heroes. But I want to kind of table that question for now and instead look at the various ways that Rand kind of misses what's going on in a lot of art that does, in fact, hold up heroic values, because that, I think, is the real key to moving past Rand in some way, to understanding why she is so blind about so much of what's going on here. Because at the end of the day, yeah, we don't know why. Like, just reading this work, we see a profound sense of the way that art works, a very well-informed sense, and a sense that 
motivates her own creative abilities. It's probably why the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged are so compelling to so many, even if the culture at large has condemned and criticized them. But we need to understand why. Why is she seeing some of this and why is she not seeing others? Why is she aware of the heroism in some categories but refuses to acknowledge it in other places? Why is she so happy about these particular writers in the Romantic period but not nearly as happy about the, you know, medieval heroes which I would which t served to inspire the likes of Tolkien and Lewis even as she is calling them all gargoyles and you know a sort of deformed half men and it's surprising frankly on that front what I want to stress is I want to go through the other sort of tangentially romantic tangentially heroic works that Rand identifies here um, specifically, she is weirdly critical about quite a few of them in her chapters on bootleg romanticism and her sort of later explanation of what is romanticism, um, as well as like the whole discussion of the aesthetic vacuum of our age. She glosses over a lot of stuff that I tend to think actually is a lot closer to her view of the way that hero heroism and rational heroism, even this heroic romanticism, tend to work. Like, the most obvious example in my mind is she kind of talks about detective novels and then really quickly gets off of it. On the one hand, she identifies the detective novel and the thriller especially as being a vessel for romantic plots. That in the same way that romantic, as she understands it, the heroic romantic uh, plot tended to work, driven by, you know, people who were motivated by values, driven by this rationality, um... In the same way that she identifies this as, as, you know, being sort of inherited from the Romantic tradition, she doesn't usually recognize the novels themselves as being bearers of Romantic heroes. Instead, she very much says that, like, the heroes and villains are all boiled down to the same level, and they're essentially possessed of the same values, and therefore, you know, the whole thing is a moral gray area. Um, and then by the 1960s, we're talking about the, the whole, like, aesthetic vacuum and, and bootleg romanticism, and she's emphasizing that now it's all tongue-in-cheek, and nobody takes it seriously anymore, and it's all just, you know, a like, sly evasion of moral accountability for the art that they are writing. That, you know, here we have these artists presenting this sort of grim, ugly view of the world and then sliding away with a smile and saying, eh, I'm just kidding, it's no big deal. Like, nobody is actually willing to commit to their principles in this case. And on the one hand, I see the point here. Like, I love noir fiction, and I have read quite a few novels about, you know, murders and murderers and detectives and the seedy underbelly of life in the 1930s through the 1950s, and I kind of notice what she's talking about. Like, I have two Library of America collections on crime noir, and I bought the first one, and I read it through while I was on jury duty as some sort of, like, testament to my own irony, um, and I loved every minute of it. Like, I read The Postman Rings twice, I read uh, Nightmare Alley, I read The Big Clock, and I, like, I loved every one of those works without any qualification, just they were all fascinating and interesting, and I loved, like, some of them more than others, but, you know, at the end of the day, every... Every book in that collection I, I thought was fascinating. And then I got the 1950s collection, which started off with Jim Thompson's The Killer Inside Me, and then we read The Talented Mr. Ripley, the first in a long series of Ripley-related novels. And I did not have nearly the same reaction. Um, like, there was something uncomfortable about both of those works to me. And as I've been thinking about it, especially in light of what Rand has been saying, 
I notice that there, that's largely because there's a very distinct move between the noir of the 30s and 40s and the noir of the 50s as we have it. In the 30s and 40s, usually the characters were sympathetic, even when they were murderers or people committing suicide or, you know, people caught in the gears of the grand capitalist machine as in the big clock or when they're, you know, con men like in Nightmare Alley. These characters were sympathetic because they were the product of their circumstances and the sort of square focus of these works tended to be on people's reaction to the difficult social circumstances that they found themselves in. They shoot horses, don't they? You know, presents the entire world as being this constant dance competition. Like, everybody having to dance for 24 hours, you know, without stop. And here is this person who is sympathetically hanging on with this, this woman who just can't cope with the circumstances, and ultimately she asks him to kill her. Um, it was harrowing. Like, here is this woman who is cannot survive in the society she finds herself in, and this is her reaction to it. But in the 1950s, now that we're looking at Jim Thompson's The Killer Inside Me, we're looking at a character who is depraved on their own. Like, Thompson goes well out of his way to characterize this person as being haunted by childhood trauma, as being violent for his own sake, and not as a reaction to the social circumstances of the time. Presumably the society of the 1950s is perfectly fine, thank you very much, no questions here, thank you for your time. Like... The same is true with the, the talented Mr. Ripley. Ripley is the deviant. Now, some of that could, again, be connected to childhood trauma, but we see a radically different attitude insofar as the characters of the 30s and 40s are acting rationally. They are acting deliberately. They are not the product of some sort of Freudian backstory. Instead, they are dealing with society in the moment as being unbearable, where the 1950s is showing us that the society of the moment is perfectly fine. These people are just awful people for one reason or another, possibly outside of their control. And that, I think, is speaking very much right to what Rand is getting at here. There is a huge distinction between crime as understood as a reaction to a society that is itself intolerable of any deviation whatsoever, that is criminally intolerable of any behavior outside of the norm, versus crime as being an upswelling of something you cannot control. Some people are just killers, as Chesterton would often lampoon in his own work. And that I find way less easy to swallow. I am totally willing and here for a story that gives us an example of killers who kill because it seems to be the most logical thing in their world versus killers who kill because they have no choice it's some sort of weird sexual deviance or something. The first are characters. They are moved by their values. They are changed by the world, but they are also reacting to that world. The second are characters who have no choice, and instead we are doing this supposedly deep psychological analysis of a particular type of person who can't help being who they are. The first characters are free in Rand's sense, the second characters are not. In that respect, I totally understand where Rand is coming from. On the one hand, we have this movement of these deterministic characters moved by their past who are, at the end of the day, just victims and therefore victimize others out of some sort of necessary instinctual desire to continue their victimhood, something that Rand rightfully considers terrifying and, you know, reprehensible and possibly even pernicious as works of art go. On the other hand, I wonder how much of Rand's 
knowledge of detective novels fails to include the stuff that we found in the 1930s and 40s where these characters really could be heroic. Especially because in her short story, The Simplest Thing in the World, you'll note that one of the plots that the main character, a typically rand hero who is trying to, you know, do literature the best way as he sees fit and who is, you know, naturally inclined to coming up with his great plots, actually entertains this possibility. So he says, and this is like literally page 184 out of 185 in this book, let's make it a detective story, a murder mystery. You can't possibly have a murder mystery with any serious meaning. Come on, quick, cold, and simple. There must be two villains in a mystery story, the victim and the murderer, so nobody would feel too sorry for either of them. That's the way it's always done. Well, you can have some leeway on the victim, but the murderer's got to be a villain. Now, the murderer must have a motive. It must be a contemptible motive. Let's see. I've got it. The murderer is a professional blackmailer who's holding a lot of people in his clutches, and the victim is the man who's about to expose him, so the blackmailer kills this man. That's as low a motive as you can imagine. There's no excuse for that. Or is there? What if? Wouldn't it be interesting if you could prove that the murderer was justified? What if all those people he blackmails are utter lights, the kind that do horrible things, but just manage to remain within the law, so there's no way of defending yourself against them? And this man chooses deliberately to become a crusading blackmailer. He gets things on all these people, and he forces them to do justice. A lot of men make careers for themselves by knowing where some body or other is buried. Well, this man goes out after such bodies, only he doesn't use them for personal advancement. He uses them to undo the harm these people are doing. He's a Robin Hood of blackmail. He gets them in the only way they can be gotten. For instance, one of them is a corrupt politician, and the hero, no, the murderer, no, the hero, gets the dope on him and forces him to vote right on a certain measure. Another one is a big Hollywood producer who's ruined a lot of lives, and the hero makes him give a talented actress a break without forcing her to become his mistress. Another one is a crooked businessman, and the hero forces him to play straight. And when the worst one of the lot, what's the worst that worst that's uh, one of the lot, a hypocritical reformer, I... I think, no, that's dangerous to touch. Too controversial. Oh, what the hell? When the, this reformer traps the hero and is about to expose him, the hero kills him. Why shouldn't he? And the interesting thing about the story is that all those people will be presented just as they appear in real life. Nice people, pillars of society, liked, admired, and respected, and the hero is just a hard, lonely kind of outcast. And he praises this story. Oh, what a story. Prove that. Prove what some of our popular people are really like. A great story. An important story which... And he stops because the plot. What I want to emphasize is Rand has sort of violated her own principle here. Like, if in fact she was just criticizing detective stories for everybody being the same, like the hero is a murderer and the murderers are heroes and, you know, the villains are indistinguishable from the detectives, we've literally just come up with a story that operates on the same theme and Rand is presenting it here as a good thing, as a story that penetrates to the heart of what is wrong with society today. Instead of a story that argues that society is justified, that capitalism should be upheld, instead Rand is getting at, yes, there are huge problems, corruption in the way that society is oriented today. And that a person who we might usually consider a villain, in this case a blackmailer and murderer, is in fact justified for fighting against that society. This is right where those 1930s and 1940s noir writers had their heads at. They, too, were both criticizing the state of society and upholding the rights and volition of characters who were rightfully fighting against those excesses. And honestly, when I think of detective stories in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, my mind is immediately going to the same sort of stories, the same sort of characters. Like, when I think of Philip Marlowe, Raymond Chandler's character from his various novels, from The Big Sleep to The Long Goodbye, 
I'm thinking of something almost identical. On the one hand, Marlowe looks like a criminal. He behaves in a way that is often criminal. He is often working outside of the bounds of the law and pretty frequently flirting with what is right and what is wrong in these situations. But unlike what Rand would seem to say when she boils down all these detective novels to villains and heroes in a giant muck of gray, what's important about Marlowe and what you know, Chandler frequently says in essays like The Simple Art of Murder is that he has this unfailing moral compass. Despite all of the muck around him, he always navigates through it. And what makes him so compelling as a character is that same heroism, something that Chandler explicitly compares to the knights of medieval romances and the big sleep. Chandler's hero is a hero, without question but he is a hero operating in a sordid, ugly, disordered world and where criminality is the only way to function in that world, the only way to actually deal with heroic or misunderstood criminals and at the same time deal with the corrupt social forces that keep these criminals in their criminal state. This is something that Rand is essentially describing here. Like, the idea of a blackmailer who is heroically blackmailing people into doing the right thing is very much in line with what Chandler's Marlowe would do if he, in fact, encountered someone who was above the law, but at the same time able to be pressured, able to be uh, affected in some way. Ch like, Philip Marlowe has no compunction about letting his terrible characters murder one another. The people who he is investigating, if it turns out that they are terrible and then something terrible happens to them, he will often not lift a finger and let them come to some kind of just end, especially if they won't be touched by the forces of justice in the world. He is willing to let a superior sense of justice beyond what the society can allow or con conduct take its course. And Rand seems to be suggesting something similar. So her condemnation of detective novels seems inappropriate then. She fails to see that many detective writers, many of the writers sort of engaged in these questions, are at the end of the day sympathetic to her own perspective. As far as values-driven characters are concerned, they are all over those detective novels. It's not just the plots that motivate them. Now, admittedly, you're never going to catch Philip Marlowe standing up like Howard Rourke or, or John Galt and delivering a speech on what is right and what is wrong. That's not their style. But their moral convictions shine through the narrative all the same. It's just, apparently, Rand is missing them. The other thing that is just completely absent from Rand's discussion, and which almost certainly warrants discussion on some level, is comic books. Like, it's the 1960s. We're talking about the, you know, era after the Golden Age, just before the Silver Age of comic books, and somehow Rand has completely ignored the entire form. Despite the fact that she is willing to praise Buck Rogers and James Bond, we apparently have no room to talk about Superman or Batman or, you know, Captain America. How is that the case? How can we get through the entirety of, you know, the, the art and moral treason essay where we're describing childhood moral, you know configuration and not talk about comic books like admittedly i was not into comic books when i was a kid i thought them low um which i was you know grand, gravely mistaken but also confusing which i was less mistaken about um Rand seems to just neglect the entire art form as being too low to be worth consideration despite the fact that it champions a lot of the same heroic values that rand herself seems to be championing here um 
And with that in mind, we can definitely extend this idea of these heroically motivated values to the likes of Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia. We can see kindred spirit, or at least kindred thinking, from the likes of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis with what Ayn Rand is holding up here. If indeed these works are supposed to be about moral instruction, holding up moral exemplars for the education of children and for the edification of ourselves, then yeah, holding up Aragorn or Frodo Baggins or, you know, the various characters of the Chronicles of Narnia like Prince Caspian seems like a pretty logical thing to do. Just as Superman, just as Captain America, just as Batman. Just as Philip Marlowe and just as the rest of them. Like, Rand seems to do a lot of injustice to the characters and plots and stories of many other art forms just because she seems to have a certain amount of elitism about what does and does not constitute art, what does and does not constitute values in some sense. Which brings us to kind of the mirror image of the entire discussion. Like, she is very critical of the likes of the existentialists, and yet I also tend to think that the likes of Kafka or Camus' The Stranger or even the heroes of Sartre's novels tend to also fall into this category of being values-driven in some sense. Now, admittedly, they are values-driven in a very different sense from what we've seen. Kafka's heroes are almost always, no matter how values-driven, knuckled under by a society that utterly controls them. Like, that's a given about all of the existentialists' work, all of these sorts of absurd approaches to the way that society functions. And yet, again, Rand seems to be at least somewhat sympathetic to that based on the descriptions that she comes up with in her story, The Simplest Thing in the World. If she can imagine a world where Howard Rourke overcomes the machinations of Ellsworth Toohey and the other various, you know, monstrous forces in the universe, and if she is willing to write a short story where our character Henry Dorn must ultimately knuckle under to these forces, where he ultimately reaches for the job ads because he realizes he cannot be a writer in this society, certainly she can be at least a little bit open to the possibility that there are characters who do even worse under these circumstances, where the overwhelming power of these social forces ultimately destroys the characters involved, no matter how heroic they might tend to be which is exactly what Kafka is doing and exactly what Sartre is doing. Like, he literally says that in art and uh, what is literature. He literally says that they are talking about a world where the social forces are completely unable to be moved, where the person trying to interact with these forces must choose a heroic lifestyle for themselves and yet recognize that that is a sort of impotence that they must deal with their own sort of backyard while wrestling with these overwhelming social forces that they cannot control, that they cannot move. What I'm saying here is that Rand's understanding of heroism, of values-driven motivation, actually informs a lot of art in the 20th century, way more than she seems to acknowledge. So... If, in fact, we see something as close as her plotting out a detective novel in one of her stories, a detective novel that could just as easily have been written by the likes of, you know, Philip or uh, Raymond Chandler or Dashiell Hammett, then why doesn't she recognize the value, the virtue in Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler? And I think this answer, as, you know, horrible as it might turn out to be, is probably the right one. Namely, I think that Rand's ethics, her values, are kind of at odds with the narrowness of her aesthetics. 
Like, remember all of the discussion that she had about the sense of life in her earlier chapters? Remember how weird it seemed when she emphasized that, like, the heroic, self-esteeming sense of life is inspired by the New York skyline, but, like, disgusted by the foggy moor? And, you know, I very much just dismissed that out of hand as being, like, absurd. You know, the New York skyline is frequently obscured by smog, and, you know, moors aren't necessarily in some way, like, grotesque or rotten. I tend to think that that's the key problem here. For Rand, heroism can only be communicated and expressed by this kind of selfish, capitalist motivation... Like, she cannot perceive a world where Philip Marlowe, who has this cruddy office in the middle of San Francisco or Los Angeles, you know, she can't conceive of him being a hero, even if she recognizes that the same motivations motivate him as motivate her heroic characters. Remember how in the earlier lecture I mentioned that she understands that a grand industrialist changing this, the direction of the world can in fact be a standard for a grocer, but a, the life of a grocer can't stand as the standard for an industrialist. And I pushed back against that. I said, have you read Steinbeck's The Winner of Our Discontent? That's exactly what that novel is doing. Rand seems to think that you can only present heroic virtues at a heroic scale. That they must be great heroes like, you know, her Howard Rourke, greatest of the architects, or her Hank Reardon, greatest of the industrialists, or Dagny Taggart, greatest of the railway engineers. Like, Rand can't understand the heroism of a human being except in a grand operatic context. Heroes don't live in swamps. Heroes don't live in back alleys. Heroes don't live in, you know, slums in some sense. And yet the real absurdity of this is that's exactly where they live in Victor Hugo's stories. Like the one that we didn't talk about here, the uh, introduction to 93, where apparently Rand was invited to, to write the introduction to a brief uh, a reprinting or a, a reproduction, a new translation of Victor Hugo's story, she emphasizes that, you know, this is a story about revolutionaries and, like, some of them are, you know, all corners of society and their moral problems. And honestly, like, as much as I've had tons of writers recommend books to me over the course of this project, I don't think I've ever been more inspired to read one of these works than I have been by Rand's description of 93 here. Like, it, she makes it sound amazing and, you know, it exactly sounds like it's up my alley way more than Mallarmé, you know. I apparently just... I am so sorry that I don't know French literature better. This is clearly the glaring hole in my knowledge at this point, that, like, Mar Mallarmé and Guide and Mauriac and Hugo are all just obvious omissions here. Um, I will definitely need to work on that and brush up on my French. Um, but I want to emphasize that, like, where Guide was presented to me as being kind of morally repugnant, and, you know, yes, I would read him in, in order to understand what Maritain is talking about better, where Moriac seems more interesting because, you know, the way that he is described by Sartre, he's, like, Christian, but also attentive to the existentialist problems of the time, so that sounds like fun. Here, I have... I'm being treated to a description of a story that I would 
honestly love to read where it's full of this intrigue and you know well plotted and all of these characters driven to extreme circumstances due to the revolution that hugo is talking about and you know reversals of fortune and it just sounds amazing but what i want to emphasize is rand recognizes that revolutionaries can be heroes that people who are in fact great of spirit can be reduced to the most miserly of circumstances that policemen can be villains like Valjean while or like Javert where you know random people walking on the back streets of Paris can be heroes like Valjean she seems to know this from Hugo and yet she cannot square the aesthetics of Hugo with her own view of heroism in the 1960s Rand is sort of hamstrung by her own aesthetic limited outlook, her own sense of life, as she puts it. She can't understand how a hero can live in a swamp, how a hero could live in a slum. That, to her, is out of sync with her worldview. But what I want to emphasize is, as much as her rationality is on point, as much as her the mechanics underlying her outlook on art seem to be extremely perceptive, because of that limitation, Rand can't get past her own grandiose artistic hang-ups. She can't see the virtue in something like Steinbeck's The Winner of Our Discontent, or in the detective novels of Philip Marlowe. She can't see that Buck Rogers is not just a story for children, but could in fact be the basis for a story for adults as well. And I imagine that as much as Rand might appreciate a lot of the art that we see here in the 21st century, you know, now that superheroes are de rigueur and that, you know, all of our characters are motivated by these strong moral compasses in some respect, I wonder if 1960s Rand would be able to see the virtue of these heroes without being raised to understand the mythic context and the you know differing social circumstances that these heroes could potentially be located in what about rand's upbringing or experience or perspective leads her to think that you can't be heroic in these other settings if indeed superman could be heroic to rand could spider-man or is he disqualified by his poverty, by his dumb luck in getting bitten by a radioactive spider, even if he does turn that into a clear values-driven approach to the world? Is he a hero by Rand's definition? And if not, what is wrong with Rand's outlook that prevents her from seeing it that way? And that's kind of what I want to emphasize here as we sort of wrap up our discussion of Rand. You know, here in the 21st century, I honestly think her outlook on heroism is really, in, you know, informative for the way that we understand our stories. That distinction she makes between great art and popular art, where great art is questioning and challenging and pitting these values against each other, where popular art just assumes them and moves on, I think that's actually a really fascinating metric to dissect and examine contemporary superhero movies or speculative works of literature and art like science fiction and fantasy. On the one hand, we have a lot of very confused works that sort of assume the goodness of a hero without explicitly stating what their heroic motivations might be. Something like what the Marvel Cinematic Universe tends to turn out here in 2023. But compare that to, say, the philosophy underlying Batman and the Dark Knight, or Captain America and the original Captain America the First Avenger, or 
for that matter, what we see in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and you'll see that those are works that are in fact discussing and elaborating and engaging with the morality of their characters. Captain America, during Chris Evans' run, was a totally value-driven hero, explicitly communicating his values, pitting his values against competing values, even when those values were held by other heroes. Consider the way that Joss Whedon characterizes Chris Evans' Captain America in his sort of disagreements and arguments with Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark in The Avengers. Like, Captain America is the self-sacrificial hero, the guy who's willing to jump on the grenade, and he questions and challenges Tony Stark's more individualistic, more selfish outlook. And over the course of that movie, we see Whedon dramatize it. By the end of it, it is ultimately Stark who makes the call to take the missile out into space, even if it means his own sacrifice, his own death. We get to see these morals, these values, playing off one another. And that's not to say that, you know, the Avengers is high art or anything. But it does illuminate what makes high art. How you can turn something that is typically commercial, just popular and meant to sort of be invigorating or indulgent, the way that, you know, most James Bond movies are invigorating and indulgent, and how you can turn it into something richer. Like, take Into the Spider-Verse, for example. That entire movie, as much as it is, you know, a superhero movie, and therefore inclined to indulgence, inclined to sort of flatter the audience's perspective, let them feel that power fantasy of, you know, what would it feel like to have superpowers, to be able to change the world in dramatic ways, to do more than just, like Kafka or Sartre, sit around and be crushed underfoot by the grand capitalist mechanisms or whatever the social forces of this world might be. As much as Into the Spider-Verse sort of wears that on its sleeves, it very much is not that movie. Like, Into the Spider-Verse is mean, nasty, tough to watch in cases. Miles Morales can't control his powers for three quarters of the movie. And while, you know, at the end of the day, he does in fact get his control and he does in fact, you know, become Spider-Man, the first thing he really does as Spider-Man after jumping around and doing some really cool shenanigans is get punched the crap out of by Kingpin. The fundamental morality that the that is presented here as being the basis of superherodom, what makes Spider-Man Spider-Man, is that he always gets up after getting beaten up. That's not a flattering outlook. That's not a power fantasy by any extent of the imagination. This is not a typical understanding of superheroes as being us but possessed of awesome abilities and powers that make them cooler than us. This is very keenly observing that actual self-sacrifice is hard and painful and difficult. And that's very much engaging with the values of the time. That is very much an attempt to discuss and approach and question and very much examine values beyond the conventional. By that logic, according to Rand's definition, that would be great art. That would be romantic art. That would be the same heroic romanticism we've been talking about during this time. And it makes it all the more difficult to parse, because it means that, you know, superhero movies in general can run the gamut from the extremely confused, as in, you know, something like Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, where the characters are supposedly heroically motivated, but their values are totally all over the place and confused, or the likes of something like 
Captain America Civil War that, you know, present two opposing forces with opposing values in theory, but at the end of the day, that's all lip service, and really the central conflict is about something completely different, and it's not actually about their values at all. Or something like Captain America the First Avenger, where he is sort of a conventional superhero with conventional morality, but we are taking the time to explain it in great detail and sort of or orient it according to the events of the story, or something where we're actively questioning it. All of these have a role then. You know, we have to be able to separate the various kinds of good art from the various kinds of bad art. We have to be able to recognize that art that in fact presents values, as so much of our art today does, you know, in this true Randian fashion, we need to recognize how much of it is motivated by real rational thought that is in fact articulated carefully and presented to us as something to be discussed and engaged with versus the stuff that just presents it on its sleeves is just a pure superficial, uh, like, presentation and not actually possessed of any real depth of sense or meaning. We need to recognize that they're not all the same thing here. And what makes great art for Rand may very well be what makes great art for us. What makes everything, everywhere, all at once a transcendent look at multiverse philosophy as opposed to, you know, any of the Marvel Cinematic Universe entries in the, in the genre like Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness or Ant-Man Quantumania has more to do with the actual way that the characters interact and the way that their values are, are portrayed than the superficial trappings of their context and their circumstances. That's a lesson that Rand didn't learn in some respect, but it's a lesson we cannot afford not to. We cannot lump all this stuff together and call it a day. We have to recognize that what makes heroes heroes has much more to do with their actions, their ideas, and how those ideas are dramatized than anything to do with the costume they wear. That, I think, is also what differs between the sort of pandering art, the art that flatters us into thinking we're doing the right thing, and the art that legitimately challenges us, that questions us, that makes us feel uncomfortable, and that reminds us that most anything worth having is going to be something we end up having to fight for like Into the Spider-Verse, like Everything Everywhere All at Once. There is great art in and among the commercial entries of today. I have no doubt about that in my mind. And I think Rand gives us a lens by which we can appreciate that. I think Rand shows us the way that art and mythology and literature communicate their values to us is in fact a live and really important idea for understanding how art can be ethical and what we should be expecting from it. I think Rand is really onto something here. But because of that aesthetic, because of that sense of life, because of her association of heroism with the sort of operatic context that she must necessarily keep writing about, be it Howard Rourke or Great Industrialist or whatever, I think that cripples her in a very real sense, that prevents her from being able to understand the world of art as robustly as we can now. I think that is what ultimately relegates her to a secondary status. But it doesn't relegate her to obscurity. She is not a total monster. She, if anything, again, the reason why she comes under such fire is because she comes so close to a truth, while ignoring something really powerful about something else. 
And you could argue the same about any number of tyrants and monsters. Like, I'm not going to just excuse her on those grounds. But her view of art is definitely worth looking at, can definitely inform our own, and definitely does inform mine. As we turn our attention from art, you know, as if we turn our attention to popular art, if we examine the way that art communicates moral values to us, we would be wise to consider what she has to say and stop looking at it from this, you know, highfalutin view of art that sees it purely in terms of art for art's sake or purely in terms of its historical context or the new word of the moment or whatever. I do think we need both. We need the existentialist art that is presented by Sartre and the art that recognizes the absurdity of human existence and the art that encourages us to sympathize with our fellow man at the same time as we need the art that encourages us to aspire to greatness. The art that encourages us to, you know, hold up these characters as moral exemplars and guide us morally. All of this is true. And maybe these views are to some degree incompatible. That is an exploration we have yet to embark upon. But for now, let us at the very least say that this is a very perspicacious and moral outlook on art, one that we need to consider and one that we need to wrap into whatever final conclusions we come to. Art has a place for Buck Rogers and Star Wars and Spider-Man. We clearly need them in our day and age, and they are the expression of something vital and real about our communication with one another, our communication of values and morality to one another. Rand gets that, even if she can't see it because of her own blindness. So we depart from Rand now, we move on to, you know, other writers with other priorities, but once again we have another layer to our understanding of the ethics of art overall. Next time, we tackle Derrida. And it's a one-off on this one, we're looking at just the one essay of his, so hopefully this will be a uh, rather less ambitious reading project on my end, at the very least. Um, once again, we're going to be tackling Mallarmé, so apologizing in advance for not being familiar with French literature. Alas, I really need to work on that. Maybe next time, maybe the next project for the fall will be Professor Kozlowski finally reads a whole bunch of important French literature that he didn't get to read while doing the ethics of literature thing. Uh, maybe I'll put that on the poll for, for the summer. I'm already trying to think about what, what that will include. Um, but yes, for next time we are reading Derrida's article from the book Acts of Literature. Um, the article is an interview with Derrida titled The Strange Institution Called Literature. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about Derrida. It's been way too long, so this should be fun. Um, we'll get our last French French novelist out of the way and then head back to some English speakers where I'm on more confident ground. Um, but until then, farewell. Think about Rain's perspective. Give her the credit she deserves, where she deserves it, and, and don't pay attention to her overall philosophy when it gets too weird or myopic. Um, next time, Derrida. I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that last discussion. Uh, I should stress, this is hardly the end of the Professor Kozlowski online presence. If you want to read some of my essays or look into some of the other work that I'm doing in and around the internet, or perhaps take one of my classes more formally, uh, please check me out at professorkozlowski.wordpress.com. That's very much the nexus point for all the stuff that I am doing online, and I usually keep it pretty well updated. Um, I should also stress we've got a lot of ambitious projects coming forward this year. 
Um, but a lot of those projects are kind of piecemeal and, and stalled as long as I'm not making a whole lot of money on this adventure. Um, so the two ways that you can definitely help to make Professor Kozlowski Lectures a success are like, share, and subscribe. Get the word out. Let people know that I'm talking about something that you're interested in or that there's something interesting going on with the work that I'm doing. And if you can, absolutely, please consider contributing to to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, a little bit of money goes a long way there, and it helps you to vote on the new topics that we're going to come up with or even uh, suggest new topics, especially for one-off summer lectures. So I hope to hear from you soon. I hope that you, you know, get that word out, and I'll be back soon with a new lecture.